Thank you, Noah, worship team. It's an awesome day to be together in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Today I'm going to be talking about unleashing God's power. Have any of you, um, let me just quick question, have any of you ever said, I really could use less of God in my life? <laughs> like, like, you know, I have this problem, and I really like that problem, and I don't want it to go away, God. Please just don't take away my problems. Or, um, I've got some friends and family who don't know you, Lord, and I'd like to leave it that way. No? No, no one, huh? All right. So then I think we are all agreed we would love to see more of God's power, not just here in our lives, but in our neighborhood. You know people in our neighborhood who are drug addicts. They need God's power. We know people in our neighborhood who are, um, come from broken families. Their families are broken. They need God's power. We know people who have been abused. They need God's power. We know people who struggle and wrestle with all kinds of sexual immorality issues, adultery, premarital sex, the LGBTQ agenda. And we say, God, they need your power. We need to see more of God's power here in our church, in our community, in our state, in our nation. Do you agree? Amen. So today I'm, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And um, we're going to read it. I'm going to read it to you. And we're going to just kind of keep our finger here in the text. And we're going to keep looking at it. Because there's several things I want us to see about unleashing God's power from this chapter. So starting Acts chapter 19, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. That's the, what's going to be up on the screens. Acts chapter 19, verse 1 says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, but when some became stubborn and continued in disbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're here today to look at your word. We're here today to learn, and we're here today to hear from you. Father, I pray that my words are your words, and that anything that is not from you would be quickly forgotten, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us, not just so that we can have an awesome Sunday morning and be like, yeah, that was a good word, but 
God, I pray you would speak to us so that we can be transformed and changed into your likeness. Because, God, we look around in our neighborhood and our businesses, our schools, and we see so many people who need you. And, God, they need the power that comes from your presence. Father, I pray that you would show us this morning how we can unleash that power here in our community through 22nd Street Baptist Church, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So first I I want you to see here in the chapter the whole gospel. So we have to start with the whole gospel. Um, This is the Apostle Paul. He's, He's asking these people, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said no. And he's like, huh, that's odd, right? So it says he found some disciples. So you have to ask disciples of who, disciples of what? How did he know they were disciples? So they were somehow different from the normal Jews, and he recognized that. And then he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said no. So Paul then spends some time, and he he shows them, he kind of walks them through by a series of questions, that they need the whole gospel. Now, the book of Romans was written by the same apostle Paul, written to the church at Rome, and I think of it as... Paul's great gospel book, the entire book of Romans, is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the power of God and how it works. And so as we, as we walk through the book of Romans, you may have heard it called the Roman Road. It's a very simple, straightforward gospel presentation that hits on these passages in the book of Romans. And it is, in an essence, the whole gospel. And it starts, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So right there in the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul says, here's the gospel. It's the power of God, and I'm not ashamed of it. And he goes on of Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying, hey, sin is a problem. Everybody needs to repent from sin. We've got a major sin issue. He goes on into chapter 6, 23, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So right there, he's saying, hey, sin is a problem. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody has this condition that separates them from God, and that separation is death. It will earn eternal death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He goes on into chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, and he talks about how the law was good because the law revealed in him sin. And he says, but I am a sinner, Because I did not know about coveting until the law said, do not covet it. And all of a sudden, the law said, don't covet, and all I want to do is covet. That's the purpose of the law. It's to reveal in us the fact that we are sinners. And Paul says, who will save me from this flesh of death? And then along comes chapter 8. Many uh, people who study the Bible throughout history, throughout church history, have called chapter 8 the pinnacle of Pauline theology, the pinnacle of the New Testament. Because right in verse 1, it says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So despite all that sin, despite all that problem that we have with sin, the wages of sin, all have sinned, there is now freedom in Jesus. And that freedom allows us to live by the Spirit, and we have power there. And then not only are we saved, but we're called sons and heirs. Paul goes on later in chapter 8, says these sufferings cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory. He says, all things work together for the good of those who love him. He says, those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. 
And he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is chapter 8. It's huge. So chapter 8 paints this picture of, yeah, I want that life. Yeah, I want to be able to face problems. Yes, I, I want to be called the Son of God. Yes, I want all of these bad things to work together for the good, for my good. And then that leads us to Romans 10, 9. This is Paul's how to get saved in two simple steps. It says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you will be saved. Amen. That's it. So the whole gospel, I think we can boil it down into three basic essential parts. Three parts to the gospel. Step one, repent from sin. Repent means turn. This is what John was preaching. The, 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 uh, the, uh, <laughs> John the Baptist, as he was baptizing there along the Jordan River, he said, repent, repent, believe in God, because one is coming. Jesus' first sermon in Mark, I love it. He, went, he says, uh, right in the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, it says, and Jesus went through the countryside preaching, repent and believe. Repent and believe. So step one to the whole gospel is to repent. That's to face your sin. It's to recognize how you disobey God. How, how is God displeased in your life? What is it in your life that stinks before the Lord? What is it in your life that keeps you from being close to Jesus? You need to turn from that. You need to name it and disclaim it. That's step one, repent from sins. The second step, confess Christ is Lord. You need to confess Jesus. And what this means, uh, so this is how I was saved. I remember being a, uh, a sophomore at Arizona State University, sitting in my dorm room one night. I had, God was revealing his word to me, and I was reading through the book of Romans, and, and I, I got to Romans 8.1, and I said, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I need that. I want that. And I got to Romans 10.9, and it said, confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And I said, okay, God, what does this mean? And this is what I did. I said, Jesus is Lord looking around, waiting for something to happen. See, I mean, we sang songs in church growing up. Great are you, Lord. And I'm like, I've said this before, so why am I not saved? Why am I not saved? Well, Lord means something. It's not just a word. You know, it's not just like another word for God. Like, he's God, he's Lord, he's... Lord is a, is a positional, it's a title that, that deals with position. So to say somebody is Lord says as much about me as it says about them. Like to call God God doesn't really say anything about me. It just, I'm just calling God God. Or to say, God, you're great. Or God is wonderful. Or God is excellent. You know, I'm saying all these things about God. But to call Jesus Lord isn't just talking about God. It's actually a, a, talking about me. I don't just... Hey, hey, Lord Ashley, how you doing today? We, we don't use that term because what it means is master. Literally, in the Greek, it is the opposite of the word slave. So you don't just call anybody your Lord. You only call your master your Lord. Lord means master. In our, our context, we struggle with slavery. So what? he's your boss. He's the guy that gets to tell you what to do and when to do it and how to do it. 
To confess Jesus is Lord, you have to make a public declaration that from this moment on, you are no longer serving yourself, your own interests, your own desires, your own wants. That from this moment on, you are serving Jesus only. So if you want the power of God to be unleashed in your life, it starts with the whole gospel. You have to repent from your sin, and you have to make Jesus your boss. You can't have two bosses. Jesus says, you can't have two lords. You can't serve mammon and God. You cannot serve money, and you cannot serve Jesus. So that means that if you're a student, and you're like, I'm studying engineering. This is me. I'm studying engineering so I can get a good engineering job that pays a good salary so that I can have um, a nice house and get married and have kids and cars and all that stuff. Um, And so when I got to this part and Jesus revealed to me that I had to call him Lord, I realized that I had never done that because I was still going to school for my reasons. I I was doing things and making decisions because of what I wanted and what I thought was best, and I realized that I had to let go of that. So I got down on my knees and I said, Jesus... From this day forward, to the best of my ability, I'm going to serve you. And that's what it means to confess Christ as Lord. The third step for the whole gospel. So we have repenting from sins, confessing Christ as Lord. Third step, believe in the power of the resurrection. Jesus says, believe in your heart. Romans 10, 9, Paul says, believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Believing in the power of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Amen? Amen. We don't serve a God who died and stayed dead. We, we, don't, we don't follow this book because there was a really good teacher and he said a lot of really good things. And if we follow the good things he said, then our life will be better. This, that's not what this is. This is a record that a man came, his name was Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem, lived, grew up in Nazareth, the daughter of Mary, the son of Joseph. He came. He claimed to be God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. John eight fifty eight. he says, before Abraham was Yahweh. He says, I am. He uses God's name, his proper name. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed to be God. And then that God-man, fully human, fully God, took the road to Calvary and was crucified, brutally murdered, dead, and then buried. And if the story ended there, none of us should be here today. The story doesn't end there. On the third day, God rose him, raised him from the dead. Jesus came back to life. Jesus came back to life. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Yeah. Yeah, he's alive. I mean, this isn't play acting here, you know? We're not just going through the motions on Sunday morning. Jesus is alive. There's a power at work in this world that is able to defeat death. Death and taxes, the only two certainties in this world. Jesus says, pay your taxes, owe to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He doesn't 
Uh, sorry, you still have to pay taxes. But death is done with. And yeah, I sit here and I'm like, oh God, I have a, I have a theology test due on Monday and I'm preaching a sermon this Sunday and I don't know if I can do it all. <laughs> Jesus is alive. Uh, that's the whole gospel. That's the three parts of the whole gospel. Repent from sins, confess Christ as your Lord, and believe in the power of the resurrection. So Paul comes to Ephesus. He meets these 12 guys. They're called disciples. So they call themselves disciples of John, so it makes me wonder if the reason that Paul was able to identify them is because they were wearing camel's hair, eating locusts. Like, how did, how did Paul know that they were disciples? Anyway, that's just, you know, that just kind of like blows my mind. But anyway, um, so Paul gives them the whole gospel, right? He says, all right, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They say, no. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. Paul said, well, okay, this is what John did, but here's Jesus. They said, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of him. In the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Paul laid hands on them. So, so step one is the whole gospel. We want to unleash God's power. We need the whole gospel. The second step is the right response. We have to have the right response to the whole gospel. Do you ever just look at the questions in the Bible? Like, so I, I go on campus. I talk to college students. I've been doing a college ministry for years, and I, I think a lot about questions, and I think about how people answer questions. Um, one of my favorite apologetic questions was from C.S. Lewis. He said, who do you say Jesus is? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? I love that question. Um, one of my favorite Jesus questions is when the Pharisees were going to trap him, and they're like, by what authority are you doing these things? He's like, I'll ask you, I'll answer your question, but I'm going to ask you one first. He says, the baptism of John, did it come from man or did it come from God? Essentially, Jesus is asking them, I want you declare whether John's ministry was led by God or it was completely man-made. And he stumps them. They're like, well, if we say it's from man, he's going to say, why didn't we believe him? Or, uh, uh, no, they say, if we say it's from God, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him and go get baptized? And if we say it's from man, then the crowd's going to stone us. So they're like, oh, we don't know. I love that question. I love how Jesus used questions. But as I was looking at this and studying this and thinking about this, all of a sudden, Paul's questions began to stand out to me. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, look at their answer. What did they say? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I think their answer reveals their heart. Because what if they were apathetic? If they were apathetic, Paul's like, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, no, nah, we're not really interested in that. They could have been like, you know, what is this Holy Spirit thing? What it, or they could have been in disbelief, and they could have been like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Or maybe, maybe they, they could have been arrogant and been like, no, we have what we needed. John baptized us. But look what they say. They say, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. You know how I think they said that? Paul comes to them, and he's like, 
hey, did you guys ever receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. Tell us, tell us more. Tell us about this thing. What, what is the Holy Spirit? And he says, well, into what were you baptized? And they just said, into John's baptism, but, but more about this Holy Spirit, please. Paul's like, okay, well, John baptized the baptism of repentance. We talked about that, turning from sins. But, um, and he said, he told the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They didn't even stop to think about it. You know, I think about serving in, in, in church ministry and being in a Baptist world, and, and we talk to people about baptism. We, we have a specific belief that we believe that only believers should be baptized. And if you're a believer, then, then you should be baptized. We, um, you know, I, I was, when I was born, they christened me in the Catholic Church for the first five years of my life. I was, I was a Catholic, and then, I don't know, I went to an evangelical church through the rest of, you know, like, until I got to college. In college, I went to a Baptist church, and my pastor was like, have you ever been baptized? I was like, yeah, I was sprinkled. And he's like, well, that's not what baptism is about. I said, huh, let me think about that for a little bit, because I'm not sure I'm ready to get baptized yet. It took me a couple years. And then when I worked, served at a church, he, we'd have people come in all the time and be like, I'm really interested in your church. And, and I'm like, well, have you been baptized? And they're like, well, I was sprinkled as a baby. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, that's not really baptism. And what do they say? They say, oh, well, I don't know that, I don't know the baptisms. I'm not, like, I like coming to church. I like being here. I like showing up. But that whole baptism thing seems a little bit, I don't know. Well, that's not what these guys say. <laughs> they say, baptize us right now. Like, whatever the spirit thing is, we want it. We want it. As somebody who, who, who works in ministry and has led worship and um, served on church staffs, I can tell you, I, I don't know of a single person who goes into ministry hoping that the people they minister to never respond. Like, I go out on campus, you know, to the U of A, and, you know, we try and prayer walk and try and share the gospel, and I go every week, and never once do I think, I really hope nobody wants to know Jesus. And no, no pastor stands in the pulpit on Sunday morning and says, I'm putting a lot of time and energy into preparing uh, a word for my people. I really hope none of them get it. I would hate for anybody to actually respond to the gospel because then, I don't know, maybe I'd have to do a little more work. Nobody says that. You know, we, we had an excellent volunteer substitute serving our connect group just a few weeks ago the entire time i'm on my phone like a like a petulant middle schooler nobody volunteers to lead connect group to have someone sit on their phone the whole time nobody does that i can guarantee it every single one of us who serve the lord who 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 try and volunteer at church we do so hoping that the work we do is going to make a difference the yeah, pastor actually gets up here every week, and I guarantee you he prays that the word that he gives will lead some of you to respond, will lead me to respond. Look at how these guys responded. They were excited. They believed. They obeyed. And I think that's the right response to the whole gospel, that if we want to unleash God's power, we need to respond correctly to the word of God, and we need to respond with excitement, or if you don't like that word, how about engagement? Engagement. 
leaning, leaning in, asking for more. We need to respond with belief, saying, yeah, I trust my pastor. He's not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I believe that he's doing his best, and I believe that when he, when he teaches God's word that he's teaching me correctly, and I'm going to obey it. He says, hey, we should take some next steps. I'm going to do that. Instead, what most of us do, I think, is we go, yeah, maybe next week. <laughs> What's for lunch? I can't, I, can't, I can't lie and say that. I've not sat there and been like, I wonder what Sarah's got in the crock pot today. I think it's beef or chicken. Nobody stands up here and says, yeah, I, I really hope all of you are disengaged. <laughs> and and if, you were to, if you were to share the gospel with your neighbor, none of you say, yeah, I really hope my neighbor like rejects me and hates me and never wants to talk to me again. I mean, if that's you, I'd like to talk to you because I'm impressed. I'm scared or impressed that if, you, if you're one of those people who's like, I want to talk to people about Jesus and I don't want anybody to respond. But that's... That's what brought about the Spirit's power here. And that, that's what we see. So the right response to the whole gospel brings the Spirit's power. So we're going to look at this real briefly. But the day of Pentecost happened, Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes down on the disciples of Jesus, right? They're in the upper room. They're waiting. They're praying. They're asking God, um, what's next? They're, <laughs> I love this. they're casting lots for who's going to replace Judas. Um, they didn't know any better, but... Paul was like, Jesus, uh, Jesus was like, Paul's going to replace Judas, just you wait. And they're like, nah, we'll cast lots. I mean, you never heard of the guy after that. Um, but, so we have the day of Pentecost, but then in, in, the, in the book of Acts, we have three mini Pentecosts that follow. So the first one is in Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes to the Samaritans. The Jews' number one enemy was the Samaritans, and the Spirit fell on them. So it was God saying, hey, look, hey, look what's happening here, the Spirit. I, the gospel is going to go to the Samaritans. Then we have the second one in Acts chapter four, uh, 10, 44 through 48. The Spirit falls on the Gentiles. He, Cornelius and his family, they all believe. And the Spirit comes, and then there's speaking in tongues. And then here in Acts chapter 19. Now, when we study the Bible, we have to ask ourselves when we come to the story parts of the Bible, like Acts or like Genesis or other places in the Bible where it tells stories, we have to ask, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? That is, is this just describing what happened, or is this prescribing what ought to happen? Is this, is this, is this telling a story of what, what things took place, or is this, is this telling us what we should expect to see? And the Spirit, these, these three little mini Pentecosts, is one of these things where it's very likely just descriptive. It's God's way of saying that he was enabling the church to fulfill the ministry in Acts 1-8 to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, so it's very likely this is just descriptive. <laughs> I can tell you, no, nobody, no Baptist minister I know doesn't secretly hope that it's prescriptive. We're like, if man, if I could just study the Bible and find the prayer to pray, the, the, the message to preach, the discipleship curriculum, that will then bring God's power, and then thousands of people will come to know Jesus next Sunday. Like, no, no Baptist pastor doesn't secretly hope for this and pray for this. We're like, oh, man, I really would hate it if the entire city of Tucson came to know Jesus. Ugh. No, we're like, come on, God, come on, people, we can do this. We got to do this together. 
Like, wouldn't it be terrible if I could find just 12 guys who would all, within two years, <laughs> that's the result, right? We see that in this passage. In two years, the entire area had heard the gospel. I have 15 college campuses south of Phoenix as part of my work, Christian Challenge. There's 100,000 college students, and I'm praying all the time that God would get us to the place where we could have the opportunity to share the gospel with every single one of those before they graduate. We're always praying, and we're always seeking to find what it's going to take for God to open up the storehouses so that we could see his movement. We beg God to unleash his power here. And why? Well, this is where we see in the, the, rest, of this, uh, the rest of today's passage that um, unleashing God's power which is the right response to the whole gospel, which brings the Spirit's power. Unleashing God's power brings God-sized results. So he baptizes these 12 guys. The Holy Spirit comes on them. And then what do they do? They go into the synagogue. That's where the Jews met for three months. And they spoke boldly, persuaded them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew. So uh, there's a good ministry philosophy there. Go where God's working. It's okay to shake the dust off your feet from time to time. But he says, then he went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. We have no idea who Tyrannus is. We have no idea where the lecture hall is. Um, an interesting thought that, that, was, um, that came up in, in my study was that um, this hall of Tyrannus, it was likely a building. So where, where Ephesus was, it got really hot during the day. And so the people would work from about, you know, 7 a.m. to noon. Then they take a break for a few hours and they come back. And so what, the, what they're suggesting is that Paul and his disciples, they worked in the morning. And then in the afternoon when everybody was home sleeping, they would go to the lecture hall, which would then be open, and then they would work another four hours preaching the gospel to anybody who would hear. And then they go back to work in the cool of the day. And so that they were putting in double hours to be able to reach the people. But then, then this is what it says. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the western half of Turkey. 250,000 people living in this area at this time. 250,000 people heard the gospel. And later in the chapter... I'm sure Ashley will get, this, get to this. I don't want to steal his thunder, but they had reached so many people for Jesus that the people who made idols were worried about going out of business. The idol makers were worried about going out of business because so many people believed in Jesus. That's an incredible testimony. And that's what we want to see here. This is what we beg God to see here at our church. I'm talking about our community. We want to see families restored, divorces, all that kind of just garbage. We want to see God take care of it. We want to see addicts cure, drug addicts give up their addictions and, and experience the power of the resurrection in their lives. The, the, those who have been abused, victims of abuse, we want them to find healing and power in the gospel. And let's ask ourselves, what's getting in the way? What's preventing us from seeing God-sized results here? Let's be honest. I am. I'm the reason we aren't seeing God-sized results here. 
I'll be honest, my response to the whole gospel is not always excitement or engagement, belief or obedience. I sit here Sunday after Sunday as our pastor prepares God's word and invests time in helping guide us and lead us, and sometimes I walk away like, huh? What did he say? And so we as individuals need to have the right response to the whole gospel. And we're going to sing an invitation song here, Jesus Paid It All. And I think this song really captures the right response. I hear the Savior say, that Jesus is saying to us, your strength is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left this crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. That's us. We're lepers, not leopards. <laughs> We're not South American cats with black spots. We're lepers. A leper, if you read in Deuteronomy, there was a white spot that, that kind of took over leprosy. They'd have to be cast out. Like, Jesus is saying to us, I have strength for you. I have power for you. I can wash away the disease that keeps you separated from God. The things that you're ashamed of and embarrassed of, I can take them away. And all you need to do is give it all to Jesus. Jesus.